Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The merriest and most blessed of Christmases to all of you, from Larry Wysoon, our sponsors, and me, David Fox. Larry is spending time with his family this Christmas week, and he and I hope you are able to do so as well. For our Christmas visit this week, we have chosen a few short segments from some of our more interesting past campfire sessions. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't remind you about DSC's 40th anniversary convention to be held at the K. Bailey Hutchinson Center in Dallas, January 6th through the 9th. For more information about the convention and the great auction items that will be sold at the nightly banquets, please go to www.biggame.org. Even if you cannot attend, you can bid on those auction items to help support DSC's mission of conservation, education, and hunter advocacy. Again, all that information can be found at www.biggame.org. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy a well-deserved campfire. Merry Christmas. Welcome to the DSC campfire, and this morning we're so very fortunate once again to have Mr. Corey Mason with us. and. Got a chance to come over to the DSC offices for our monthly DSC Foundation meeting. Corey, you're headed off to a different part of the country here very shortly. I am. I'm heading to Washington, D.C., which often feels like its own country. That's That's for sure. I've said country. (laughs) Yes, sir. Uh, Leaving just a couple of days. And what is going to be the primary purpose? I know that you've got a lot of things that, that you'll have to do or you're looking forward to doing, actually, in a relatively short period of time, I would imagine. Yeah, so uh, I headed up there for one of our uh, one of our partner meetings, and as you well know, Larry, we work very strategically with partners all across the world. And one of our key partners that we work with is the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, obviously based out of Washington D.C., a nonpartisan effort in which Congressional Sportsman's Foundation works across the sporting community, hunting, fishing, outdoor access related, uh, the support of sustainable use, obviously science-based wildlife conservation, and. Uh, they're on the leading edge of that, working with, you know, all across the, the party, all across Congress um, and a number of as well as state levels as well. And so I'm headed up there. Uh, they have their annual banquet in Washington, D.C. And obviously, when they are bringing in so many people, we have a lot of events around that. So 
it'll be a, a pretty action-packed about three days. I got a feeling you're going to be plenty busy. I'm hoping you're getting some sleep right now because I got a feeling once you get there, there's not going to be a whole lot of time for that. How very much involved, and I say very much involved, is DSC with all these things, such as what you just mentioned with the Sportsman's Con- Congressional Sportsman's Caucus? Absolutely. So from, from a number of fronts, I'll address that. So financially, we support Congressional Sportsman's Foundation because of the staffing they have across the United States uh, to represent challenges. It may be in Oregon from a petition item at a state level uh, to New Mexico, to the eastern, wherever it might be. Uh, as obviously well as their presence within Washington, D.C. proper. So Dallas Safari Club proper supports the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation from a direct grant, from a funding standpoint, as well as does Dallas Safari Club Foundation. All recognizes the need from the education and advocacy attendance of the mission from both. And so we support CSF in that way financially, uh, but we also partner on just routinely throughout the year on pieces of legislation that are come up. It may be that we're working with CSF to work through our chapters uh, to have an active presence at a state level so that we have state level constituents that are contacting their member of Congress. Um, and it may be that we're writing speaking points or back and forth or disseminating fact sheets that CSF has put together. So we're, we're galvanizing the community within hunter based funded conservation organizations to support. Sometimes that's support a piece of legislation and sometimes it's to oppose a piece of legislation. And sometimes it's even before that we're there's a discussion on a topic that we know someone's going to drop a bill and we may be encouraging them, maybe encouraging their constituents to support that, to, to write or call some of the conversations we've had in the past, or it may be that we're opposing that and we're providing them facts. And so we work really closely with CSF as well, kind of a second way. And then lastly, I have the great privilege of serving on the CSF as a board member. Uh, so I get Fantastic. to work directly on the front line with CSF, obviously bringing DSCs needs and mission and, and resources as well along and so it's a great partnership in a lot of ways what kind of participation is there on the congressional level yeah so we have uh, uh from my role in the csf board uh we have numerous meetings through the year uh very focused meetings uh where we come together for two or three days and they're they're very strategic and it's a it's a very well represented board leaders in the industry um, and very generous folks that support the mission the mission and message there of csf uh, and then from CSF's action to Congress, uh, it is the largest bipartisan effort of sportsmen across uh, as sportsmen and women. Uh, from when I say, I mean broadly, that's fishing, right. hunting, shooting, all of it, uh, access to public lands, really all of that. Uh, and it is the largest effort that exists. So CSF is really tip of the spear with that. They're an absolutely great organization. I've kind of watched it from the side a little bit, and having yeah. you involved makes me even that much more prouder that DSC <laughs> truly is involved. What about DSC member involvement in this? What can they do to support the the DSCF? I mean, I'm sorry, I'm going. I hate acronyms, and I can't forget. <laughs> but the Congressional Sportsman Foundation. Yeah, we've seen a couple of things. I'll give you one specific example. It's very heartening. You really appreciate. So uh, a couple of years ago, maybe a year and a half ago now, sort of COVID has my timeline and my head messed up. I, I but, hear that. <laughs> uh, there was a particular piece of legislation that was dropped in in Connecticut, uh, obviously in the Northeast there, that would prohibit the legal Im- the importation of legally taken animals. Uh, these were this particular legislation was specifically from Africa. Right. Uh, and so we have a Northeast chapter of DSC. So yes. we, we mobilize the Northeast chapter specifically with the Northeast contact from Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, as well as DSC supported it in writing and filing and testimony and all that. But by having our chapter specifically activate with the CSF rep up there, they were able to have a number of, again, state-level constituents that had the ability to contact their representative directly 
CSF fed them uh, speaking points, fact sheets, etc. So it didn't require onerous work that you know people didn't have the ability or maybe knowledge clearly to 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 deal with you know and to prepare with. And so it was just a hand in glove kind of relationship, and then very effectively that piece of legislation was defeated. Uh, much to the efforts of CSF, much to the efforts of a coalition of partners, as well as to the Northeast chapter that had a very active role in that. So that's a great example of how one person, a group of people, a DSC chapter can truly change policy. That is. The, the chapter has become so very important in so many different ways. Of course, you just mentioned, as far as I'm concerned, one of the really important things about them. And there's so many ways to get involved in chapters. We've got chapters all right. over across, and they can go to the website and find it and all yep. those kind of things. Find out chapters, and if not, talk to Carson Keys, and I'm sure Carson will direct them <laughs> to the right place. Right. And he'll, he's also there, of course, to try to help start some chapters, if that's the case. In your trip there, do you see any specific things that you're going to have to address going into that, uh, meet those various meetings that's coming up very quickly? Yeah, there are a couple of things. There's one right now that's a real hot button, um, and it looks like from sort of a global scale right now where where we have a House and a Senate that are trying to determine what a budget looks like for the United States and a budget seedling and those yes. kind of things. And really to kind of set that aside, but it's directly related to that, is the funding of the Department of the Interior and thus the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which interior appropriations is a language. And there's been an amendment offered to that. It was actually scheduled to be heard this week. But now Congress is looking at continuing resolution or government shutdown. We don't know what's going to happen in the next few days. Right. Uh, sort of a dot, dot, dot to be determined. But if it's this week or next week or before the end of the year, that amendment will be heard. And that specific amendment restricts it. It allows the funding of the Department of the Interior with a caveat that they could not use any of those funds to process ele or elephant or line import permits from Zimbabwe, Tanzania, and I believe it's Zambia. Um, and so it's, it's absolutely not based on any facts. It's just, it's just personal ideologies from some number of members of Congress that would insanely restrict the funding of the Department of the Interior with an amendment that did not allow them to use those funds to process import permits. Again, this is not poaching. These are legally taken, approved by the country, quotas approved by CITES, in which the U.S. government, U.S. is a party to, Yes. and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service recognizes enhancement there, legally, the ability to take and, and import, but yet Congress would essentially stick its nose under that tent and try not to allow that. So, yes, we're working very passionately to make sure language like that, that again, that has no science behind it, no fact behind it other than someone's own sense of what they feel, you know, that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is an agency of thousands of employees should not be doing. It's, it's absolute lunacy and it's, it's hypocrisy more directly. But that is a, a very hot item right now that we're working on. Yeah, as you were talking about that, this, this photograph comes to mind of all these natives sitting around this little campfire in, in Africa saying, now what do we think we ought to tell the guys in the U.S. to do with white-tailed deer exactly. this year? Yep. <laughs> and to, to me, those kind of things are so absolutely ridiculous. And we, we've talked about this in the past numerous times, but if that government there with scientific data believes that hunting is relative, important, and important for the sustainability of that or sustainability of that particular species, then why should we say otherwise? I know. You know, and, and, and we get the question, and it's a fair question to ask, is, you know, why do we so passionately and vehemently dig into these battles over something like an elephant and line import? And maybe on the surface, that's a fair question. 
And, and the reason was, number one, it completely undermines what has made totally. wildlife conservation globally successful. Totally, yes. Is it undermines science-based wildlife conservation and undermines the fact that trained resource professionals should be managing wildlife resources. And no disrespect, man, here, but a member of Congress has no idea what they're talking about when they do something like that, generally speaking. This is not a congressional-level decision. It shouldn't be. It should no. be based on trained wildlife professionals making these decisions and agency representatives, et cetera, et cetera. So that's one issue. But then number two, should something like this gain, you know, a finger hold, if you will, a toe hold and move forward, it would, it's completely naive for someone to think that there's not next species next. Oh, and, yes. and the next species is who knows what it is. Maybe it's an, a mountain species from Asia. Maybe it's black bear from Canada. It could be right. that local. It could be fur bearers from Canada. It could be anything like that. And so, Although, yes, this is targeting something that a very, very small percentage of hunters around the world hunt. The point is it undermines science-based wildlife totally. conservation that is legal in that country and approved by CITES. So why would we allow a member of Congress to determine if that should occur or not? And then the precedent that comes from that, which is extremely dangerous. It, it's unbelievable. And the unfortunate thing is most of these folks really have no concept about what's going on over there. I've, I've been over there, fortunately. I've been involved in taking out species, an individual of the species. that was causing all kinds of problems. I mean, knocking down homes, eating crops, and, and uh, it, it's just... I wish there were a way to, we could transport some of those folks into those situations to where they would have to live for maybe a week in that person's body, if you will, you know, in those kind of situations where they're faced with some of the, the things that uh, we're kind of addressing here and, and why it's important because, again, it, as we've so very often said, if there's no economic value on those things, they're going to they're gonna find a way to get rid of those animals. And, yep. it, and it will be on a wholesale basis, not on an individual, not scientifically based, other than maybe the poison they use has some science behind it kind of That's thing. Right. But they'll get a poison in a water hose. And so in the long run, it's a... It's a horrible thing that could happen there. It is. And, you know, one of the things that I'm always met with a blank look when I ask this question, and I don't ask it rhetorically, but when I have the opportunity to meet with a member of Congress that would support a piece of legislation like that, like someone that would support the Cecil Act, again, that, that works against the sovereign right of people around the world. And I asked them respectfully, I said, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Member of Congress, right. can you please tell me who within country X within their wildlife ministry that you have visited with about this to understand the impact. And their, their blank stare back is always, number one, it's just a blank stare. Number two right. is, well, I haven't visited with anybody there. And then I just let it be a very awkward, silent moment for them yes. to just reflect on the fact that they're making this decision in a vacuum outside of the knowledge of how does it affect someone else's. You know, no one in the United States has any legal right to an elephant in Zimbabwe. No. There's no. not a universal ownership of wildlife. No. That right doesn't exist. And so for anyone from the United States to feel like they have the right to tell someone else how to manage their wildlife is very arrogant um, and it's ill-informed. And so when you pose a question back respectfully and say, could you please tell me who in the ministry you visited with that can speak to the impact of this on their wildlife conservation practices, as well as to the issue that you mentioned, Larry, how will this impact human wildlife conflict? They just look at the ground because they never even thought about maybe I should ask somebody a question. It's so sad, yeah. and, the, the, and it's it's ignorance in some instances, and in some instances, I almost like it's stupidity because they should have had, they should have known to ask 
rather than assume. Or they just simply don't care, and that's what it is. And a lot, and a lot of it, that's what it comes down. And they, they, they've got their hand right in front of their face, and what they're seeing is their fingers. And they're not saying anything beyond that, and they don't care. Yeah, that really is the sad part. What about some of the other things that you're going to be able to do while you do, while you're there? Because the reason I'm asking this because I want to come back once you get once you and I think Tim Fallon may be going with you this time too, right? That's right. We have a couple of DSC and Foundation cool. representatives that are cool. joining us there, and one of our friends, uh, strong friends for many many years, John Jackson, will be there with Conservation oh, Force and, Good. and joining us there. Um, and our pack treasurer Lance Phillips will be there with us, and so Fantastic. we'll have the opportunity to support uh, that particular effort at CSF as well as some some other things that are through the day. There's some particular events if some of their uh, sort of subcommittees will be meeting and we'll be working on some particular items and the Sporting Society which is one of their sort of philanthropic giving levels to support uh, the activities of CSF, the things they represent and the things that they are active in and so we'll have a million one-off meetings as you know. I can imagine, yeah. yeah. And then then I'll be uh, uh, two days of meetings and then we have the banquet that night on uh, Tuesday night, excuse me, and then Wednesday we have board meetings and so uh, then I'll be headed back this way and then turning back around in a couple of weeks to head back to Washington. So, Sounds like your frequent flyers are going to kind of grow here in the next couple of weeks. They have returned, that's right. <laughs> they have returned, that's right. Well, let's kind of shut this down here right at this point because I really want to come back to some of the things that we approached to see what you garnered, gained, or whatever in terms of of some of the questions that might arise and have arisen. So let's join back here in about two weeks or so after you get back, and we'll reconvene this campfire and try to figure out what happened. Sounds great, Larry. Thanks for the time. Thank you, Corey. Back in the offices of the DSC and here with Corey Mason. Corey, there have been a few changes happening here as of late. You are now CEO of DSC and the DSC Foundation. Congratulations. Thank you, Larry. I've been really uh, privileged to be able to work for a fine organization and excited to have the ability to work even closer with the foundation. Well, I, I for one, am extremely thrilled. I know there are a lot of other people kind of feel the same way. It's, it's good to have us all under one roof because basically we're one organization with with the same purposes, but maybe sub from that a little bit different purposes in terms with the foundation to try to raise money that we can use for conservation, education, hunter advocacy or advocacy, if we will. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, with with the foundation really getting its legs under it and really just off to a running start the last few years, it's been impressive to see what the foundation has done from a uh, from a philanthropic standpoint and from an event standpoint and the momentum that's come out of the foundation. So very pleased to be able to join in those efforts and help really kind of make sure that the two are, are running, you know, parallel with each other. Not that they weren't, but to ensure that they're just as close as they can be with you know, DSC's mission, and obviously the foundation's mission is to serve the mission of DSC. So Absolutely. It's, it's hand in glove. <laughs> it is hand in glove, and we've come a long way, actually, in the last year. Had our had a very successful gala back in July that, uh, I mean, we're still thrilled about. And I've started planning for the next one. But there's so many different ways that we kind of work together as well, too. And uh, we're, this morning we just finished a DSC foundation meeting and a, and a, a uh, kind of information meeting as well, too, uh, DSCF is going to have a new website before too very long. I think it will be a lot easier for people to, to not only visit but see changes there and a whole lot easier. And DSC, I'm sure, will follow suit somewhere in the not-too-distant future as well in, in creating a website that may be a little bit easier to negotiate or n- n- navigate 
I'm having one of these mornings where we've been in meetings for the last months, it seemed like, and yep. uh, so I'm kind of grasping for terms. So hope the listeners, you will both bear with me. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of good things going. Like you say, if it's something as is even essentially in the house, like of working through the website to ensure that it's clean and fresh and most relevant information is easy for people to find, and and I think that does speak to the fact of Larry the the focus in content production and messaging that both DSC and the foundation have, have put out. Uh, very purposeful, very strategic, uh, in the sense that one builds to the other and it's addressing either current or emerging issues, it's responsive, or it's getting into it, providing a tool to our members, to the general public, whatever it might be, of informing conservation through hunting or the need for science-based wildlife management or the issues of human-wildlife conflict and all those kinds of tools that are there, um, speaking points, any and all other articles, other things to link to on the website and the DSC Foundation, a, a video library, the DSC Foundation does a great job of really serving as a resource for people that are looking for information to maybe empower themselves to have a conversation with a coworker, to be able to answer a question, or maybe from that non-hunter that's out there that's looking for information of, you know, I've heard about this. Why would somebody want to hunt an elephant? Or why would right. somebody want to hunt a bear? And what's the, I'm having a hard time understanding the conservation benefit of that. Great. Let's answer that question, and we'd be happy to talk to you about it, but there's also a lot of resources out there on the DSC Foundation website. So although kind of a website refresh is, it seems a little, little mechanical, it's really important from content production. Well, some very classics is our messaging arm when it comes to both DSC and DSC Foundation. Or they just do such a fabulous job in terms of the message that they produce, but also the video footage that runs along with it is just out of this world good. Um, Going into that side of the things, let's talk a little bit about the convention because those guys usually are the ones who are also on the big screen are doing all of the video and those uh, presenting a message there as well, too. Where are we on the convention at this part? Yeah, so we have a lot of exciting things to report. As we've seen, many things in the world continue to, to soften and open up from a travel restriction standpoint from our international guests, which is extremely important from our exhibitor base, the finest outfitters and just anyone in the in, in the outdoor industry from around the world that's under that that roof uh, early January, so that's a, that's a great thing. Again, we've seen restrictions easing starting November one from some of those international visitors, uh, but the convention is really shaping up. We have lined up a great slate of evening speakers and working on some of the others to nail down. Um, but we're seeing just great excitement from people calling the office, you know, hey, where'd I get a day pass? Or, well, they're not quite for sale yet. We're just waiting. Or I want to get a night banquet ticket. Or, you know, what's the cost of this or that? And, you know, uh, in fact, earlier this morning, Larry, you and I were working through uh, the waiting list. You know, right. we have this great slate of outfitters and exhibitors and, you know, from industry to gear to artists to whatever it might be. And, you know, every year we have a few spots available. And so we're obviously just making sure that we have the finest and the best in the world in that space. So when someone comes to DSC convention, they know when they walk to the door, they're seeing the best and the brightest, whatever that market is. And, uh, we work to make sure that we put them in the hall. Absolutely. If you go in and you book a hunt with somebody, you know you're going to have a good hunt. It's up to you to have the great hunt, but they're going to provide <laughs> it for you kind of yep. thing. But we, we do. We have the best outfitters and the best equipment guides yep. and right down all the way to the to the to from the ground on up when it comes to hunting. And a little bit, too, we're getting more and more fishing involved as well, too. And we looked at some of the outfitters this morning from different parts of, uh, actually different parts of the world with, with fishing opportunities as well so 
even if you're not a hunter but you love to fish, yeah, the SC convention is going to be a pretty special place to go to this time. It is. That's a great point. And one of the things that we really look at year after year is the uniqueness of an experience or opportunity or item, whatever it might be. Uh, for example, we had a gentleman contacted us just a couple of weeks ago that has these essentially, um, I'm just going to call them off-road vehicles. They're a particular type of Bronco, Land Rover, right. things like that. that they sort of modernize in an off-road standpoint, you know, that they were looking to try to get into the convention. And and uh, we have some really specialized pieces of equipment that are already there. But And then it's some of these unique experiences, like you say. You know, if it's a, a shark fishing expedition or if it's a really unique hunter, it may, it may not be a hunter fishing trip at all, but it's a wilderness experience. You know, it's a stargazing trip in southern Africa. I mean, any and all of that is all under that DSC roof. And it is really something for everybody and we say this all the time but we truly mean it it is it is truly an environment though that is built for the family as well the the family aspect in this is amazing because to me i'll go to the convention and it always amazes me the the generation that we see or generations that we see everything from great granddads and and maybe even great great grand and grandmothers (laughs) you know all the way down to the to the little baby in arms kind of thing and i I love seeing the kids come through and they come through and you can just see them their eyes are open wide they go ooh Oh my gosh, yep. and that kind of thing. So we really encourage the family to come because there is something to do for everybody at the convention. There is. You know, we, we purposefully put in some areas for the for the youngest to have some things that are hands-on experiences, you yes. know. And uh, for those that have been all over the world and are looking for the most unique experience to do something that they haven't done before, if it's a trip to the literally the Arctic Circle or the, the South Pole or anywhere in between, uh, or maybe it's that particular piece of uh, art they're looking for or jewelry. Uh, and clearly when it comes from, from components in the industry, you know, if it's shooting uh, from a rifle perspective and an op- optics perspective, I mean, we have the best that's, that exists. So. We do. And those people that are there, they're excellent sources for information. I yep. mean, if you're concerned about certain kind of ammo or you have a question about an optic or a rifle or, or any piece of equipment that you might take hunting, we've got the best of those folks there as well, too. Yep. One of the things, too, we have an area that we utilize a lot for some of our partners in conservation as well. So there, I know that like GOABC and the Wall Street Foundation, and the list goes on and on there as well, too, does it not? We do. Thanks for bringing that up, Larry. We have what we call Association Row, and these are our partners in the outdoor world, uh, and they really span the gamut there. But uh, it's obviously we offer them complimentary space to come because we support them. It's a like-minded organization. We work together as partners. Uh, We have organizations, just like you mentioned, like Boone and Crockett. Wild Sheep Foundation is in that space. The Boy Scouts is in that space. Yes. We have a good relationship with Philmont Scout Ranch. And so they're in that space. We have many professional hunting associations from around the world. If it's Spain or if it's uh, Africa or if it's Guide Outfitters Association of British Columbia, Alaska Professional Hunters Association, they're, re- they're represented in there and they're represented there to have a presence. But equally importantly, to be able to answer questions, you know, if someone's looking to go to, to just use exam- uh, Alaska as an, an example again. Right. And they want to go talk to to Deb at APHA and say, hey, you know, I'm looking to go here. Can you tell me about general about mountain goat hunting? Where should I start? What outfitters operate in this general area? How does the drawing work? How long will it take me for this? Or what should I think about? That's exactly why those associations are there, because they represent their members, which are professional hunters and guides in, in the respective country uh, or state, in some cases, Wyoming, wherever it might be, New Mexico. Um, and they're a great resource, so people need to keep that in mind as well. Yeah, to me, and we mentioned the family mission. This to me, it's always been like a huge family reunion. I mean, there's so many different people there that you know, and if you don't know them, 
most of the folks there that I've ever run into have had a smile on their face while they're there. And if you bump into them, it's like, oh, how are you doing kind of yep. thing. And actually, you know, you're carrying on a conversation. Where have you been lately? What you're doing? You know, ask your family, even though you may not know the family that well at that point. But it is that graciousness of feeling, I think, at Sarah, that hospitality, maybe it's a Dallas, Texas hospitality kind of thing or a Texas hospitality that really kind of brings all this together as far as I'm concerned and far as that family atmosphere type of thing. That's exactly right. So the environment is set that way, and much of it that even builds that environment is our amazing volunteers that get us there. Oh, my gosh, you yes. Know? And it's funny how many hunt stories someone will show me. They'll pull out their phone and show me this experience <laughs> or fishing trip they were on, and I'll say, well, who'd you go to? Well, I went so-and-so, and, well, how do you know them? You know, well, I met them at the DSC convention six years ago, either bumped into the aisle or, you know, had dinner with them at a banquet or volunteered with them, and this great relationship, you know, kindled from that. And so it's neat to see not only people getting together, but also the relationships that come with that. Let's talk a little bit about the evening events because um, they go from one end of very informal to not totally formal because my idea of a black tie affair to wear <laughs> jeans, a white shirt, maybe or a colored shirt and a black neckerchief kind of thing. So, And I feel very at home against those folks who are wearing a, a, a tuxedo as well too. Sure. But we've got some really great events coming. You mentioned some of the speakers. Now we've got a theme for like Thursday night, Friday night and Saturday night as well. I understand. We do. So we open it up on Wednesday night. We have what we call the exhibitor welcome. So all the outfitters, exhibitors from around the world that are, that are part of the DSC convention. We provide them a meal that night. We just want to welcome them to back to Texas and some hospitality. They've been working, traveling from who knows where in the world. Some of them traveling for two or three days to that point. They set up a booth and it's a way to just sort of say, hey, you know, have a meal and a drink on us and relax before the next four days of craziness. And so <laughs> that's a fun event. Uh, some people of the public attend that as well. We do have an auction associated with that. So that's Wednesday night. Uh, but then Thursday, Friday, and Saturday is when we start sort of our formal evening banquets. Uh, and I would say they kind of build. They build in value they a do. little bit, yes, you know. They do. Uh, yes, sir. And each one has a different theme. Uh, and then Thursday, and they're the each mission tenant. So Thursday night has a focus on conservation. Friday night has a focus on education, and then Saturday night has a focus on our advocacy tenant of our mission. And so the awards that are presented that night are also reflective of that conservation, education, and advocacy. Uh, we do have our speakers selected for those night banquets and. We're going to start off on Thursday night with uh, uh, the president of CIC from Europe that will be sort of setting a tone from Excellent. a conservation perspective yes. from a global scale. Um, on Friday night, we have the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation president, Jeff Crane. Oh, fantastic. Uh, who's a very renowned conservationist. will be there Friday great night. Great guy. On top of everything else. Absolutely. <laughs> and then Saturday night, Mr. Paul Stones, uh, just Same a there, champion yes, of uh, a professional hunter, spokesman, just a, a gentleman of gentlemen. Uh, we'll be speaking there on Saturday night. And then we also have some other events that uh, folks would be interested in, like we have a, a live member breakfast that occurs, uh, obviously one morning of the convention, and then we have a ladies' luncheon that occurs as well. It's kind of like a brunch, early afternoon activity as well. So we try to create these different environments that are for member engagement, for things to engage in, to, again, to, to build relationships, to engage and support the mission of DSC and the foundation. Uh, but also to have a good time. Absolutely. Let's talk about the auctions a little bit. You know, yeah. last year, obviously, we did not have an in-person convention, but we had a virtual gathering, if you will, you that would. did very well comparatively to uh, sales of when it came down to the auction. Yeah. With the auction, this time we're going to be back to a live auction, but also we're going to have the virtual auction type of thing going on at the same time? We will. So we'll have a room full of people Wednesday, Thursday, Friday evening, and during the live member breakfast as well, where we'll have... 
you know, depends on what the event is, up to a thousand people in a room uh, having that in-person event. Uh, but we will have, to your question, Larry, a live broadcast out of that event with the opportunity for those that Perfect. either can't make it for whatever reason or date conflict or whatever it might be. Uh, for those that want to support the event, obviously support the mission of DSC and the foundation there uh, and participate in the auctions online. So, yes, that will be a very viable option for anybody interested. That being brought up, we recently had an event here in Dallas, uh, the night at the mansion mm -hmm. kind of thing. I happened to be down in Conroe, and I think we might have addressed this a little bit in the past. We had a relatively small group in Conroe at the <laughs> Conroe Tax Army, which yes. graciously they have a fantastic facility. Absolutely. And we did very well there on auction and some other sales as well, too. So where I'm going with that is if there is that situation where someone can't come to the convention, there's nothing wrong that says they can't get a few friends together and have their own little event somewhere, too. Absolutely. We would welcome that. And last year, whenever we had the event in February, as well as, like you mentioned, in, at the uh, the event we had at the Below Mansion, yes, uh, uh, like you say, the Simpson Taxidermy was very, uh, Simpson family, I should say, <laughs> yeah. rather, was very generous with us to, to allow what we kind of term a watch party. Uh, yes, sir. To, to host and to uh, allow access and get people together to just have a good time around it, you know, and. And, uh, yeah, we would welcome that. In fact, we encourage our chapters to be able to, you know, get together and create some of those watch party environments. And, yes, sir. And uh, if it's five people or, you know, I know some last year had 50 in a room, you right. know, and made a, made a thing out of it in their trophy room or whatever. And it's just a great time. It is. And, and if anybody any question, they can get in touch with, I'm assuming, with Nate or Carson Absolutely. Or, or you or somebody here at the office yep. how to set those up so that you're assured that you're going to be able to, to bid that night as well, too, on some of the auction items. And we provided some resources to those watch parties last year that we knew that were going yes. to occur. We actually, in, in fact, said the, the night that they were going to do it or multiple nights, we provided them some auction catalogs and a little bit of swag. You know, we provided some gun cases and DSC tumblers and some kind of just fun things like that they could use as door prizes at their event and obviously it was just it was a big bang people really enjoyed it well I am looking forward to this one this is our 40 it's our 40th convention 40th convention yes sir so we started in 18 1882 <laughs> <laughs> 1982 I think I missed the first one but I think the second and the third one I was there and then I missed one or two in between there but I think I've been at most of them since that time yep it is it's just the truly the greatest outdoor event in the world as far as I'm concerned from an outdoor perspective not necessarily being outdoors at the time yeah. but uh, from it's the what do we call it the greatest what greatest hunting convention on the planet that's greatest right. hunting yeah. convention on the planet and if you've ever been there you know that's the case and if, yep. if you do come this year and gosh we hope you do uh, you'll understand why we call it that people will have a good time and when they walk in they're always amazed at how much is under the roof there you know nearly 800,000 square foot of space that's occupied by under DSC authority and control, but the number of people that they will see there, you know, 30 plus thousand people that attend, and sometimes it's far north of that. Yes. And it's just a gathering. It, again, it's one of the largest gatherings of this kind of a convention in the world, and it's certainly one of the top two largest in North America. Absolutely. I mean, there may be, a, I know there's an event or two that occurs in Europe that's mm -hmm. very well attended, but... Yep. Attendance-wise, I'm not so sure that we aren't the biggest when yep. it comes right down to it in terms of a total attendance kind of thing. Would it remind me of the dates, and so we can get those up and, and uh, let everybody start planning? Because right now is the time to plan. And again, before we get to the dates, it's it's a four-day convention, and if there's any way in the world that you can be there, a minimum of two days, you really need to be because you're going to walk into that hall and you go. 
oh my God, you know, and, and I can't remember how many miles there are oh, of yeah. individual aisles, but you, if you really want to see the convention because you're going to run into so many good friends and all those kind of things, you really need to plan a minimum of two days and four days if at all possible. Yeah, there are a lot of people that come all four days. They they come in on Absolutely. Wednesday and they're there Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we end kind of mid-afternoon and some drive home, some fly home, and a lot of people spend another night, you know, Absolutely. and just sort of recover, and then they head back. But uh, And then we have a lot of people that drive in for a couple of days, you know, and, you know, we have contracts with roughly 13 hotels right around the area. Uh, so it helps with a financial, you know, sort of discount, as well as knowing that you're getting a legitimate room. You know, if you go online, you have to be extremely careful. There's a lot of scams out there. So use a DSE yes. you know, contracted hotel. Yes. And the importance of that as well is that we have a shuttle system that runs between all those hotels and the convention centers. So if someone's driving in from out of town, they don't want to navigate downtown Dallas and put me at the top of that list, you know. <laughs> I want to jump on a shuttle that takes me from my door to that door. Amen. If it's cold or raining or whatever, it doesn't matter because I'm picked up and I'm dropped off. So I don't have to deal with any of that. <laughs> How do they, what's the best way? Go to the website as, as far as a listing of hotels and then, of course, the dates exactly. and, and all the particulars. If they're not already there, they'll probably continue, we'll probably continue adding as well, too. Absolutely. Just get a little bit closer. Yeah, so all the details on hotels are all there, um, and uh, we can get them hooked up with any kind of a number of different kind of types and varieties and options of hotels, recognizing some people are looking for different things, whatever that is. Uh, the point is, is there's a variety of options there. and. Um, the dates of the convention are January 6th through 9th, and uh, we would just love to have somebody to, to return to the convention that knows what a great time it is. And if, if they've never been, they will be amazed at what is under that roof that they will, they will enjoy seeing. Absolutely. The old phrase, prepare to be amazed, is, yep. is, is perfect for That's our right. convention. So look forward to seeing everybody there. Corey, I think we're going to shut this thing off right now and come back and visit with you here before too very long and invite everybody to, to uh, learn more about the convention, learn more about DSC by going to B-I-G-G-A-M-E dot O-R-G. And you'll find out all kinds of information there. And if there's something they want from a personal perspective, they can pick up the phone and call us or possibly send an email as well, too. So That's it. we're here for people and, and really look forward to seeing everybody at the convention this year. Start planning now. Thank you, Larry. Welcome to another episode of DSC's Campfires. Appreciate you being with us today. And David Fox, thank you for another fine introduction. September. I tell you what, dove seasons are, are open, and I'm sure a lot of you guys have been out hunting doves. And if you haven't already, you soon will be. Had a great population this year in terms of the morning dove pretty much across North America, particularly in, in parts of Texas where I live. We've had a really good hatch this year, and so I know that there's a lot of white-winged doves that are hatched as well, too. And if you're in Texas and you have an opportunity to come to Texas, we've got some of the finest white-winged shooting there is. Of course, we're limited by regulations set up on us by the feds and the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department here, but when you get to the number of birds, it's phenomenal the number of morning doves and white-winged doves we now have in Texas. September 2 brings on to me the beginning of fall, that first season that comes up. You know, we've got teal seasons coming up here very shortly, and maybe by the time that you actually have listened to this, you will have had an opportunity to get out and hunt teal as well. And 
with me, you know, I, I love love the bird hunting. I love eating doves. I love eating quail and turkey and pheasants. And I'm not all that great when it comes to uh, waterfowl. I, I've eaten it several different ways, and I, I've enjoyed it. But it's not one of those things that I truly look forward to. And as a result of that, for the most part, I am no longer a really big duck hunter, if you will, or goose hunter. If I really like to eat them, I'll tell you what, I'd be out there more often because there's something really special about sitting in a duck blind and, or a goose blind and you hear the birds a long way off and they start circling above you and start coming down or you start calling and here they come. and You know, there's something really special about that. But again, if you love that sort of thing and you like eating them, then by all means, I'm hoping you're getting after them right now, particularly where those seasons are open. This year, I'm going to spend a little bit of time in, in September in, in uh, terms of getting ready for hunts I've got coming up a little bit later on in, in the fall, meaning latter part of September, in that I've got a uh, hunt I'm doing for elk. I think I'm going to be able to take a management bull on the Mescalera Apache Reservation there in New Mexico, and I'm waiting to find out for sure whether or not I'm going to be able to do that. Back during the summer in, I think it was July, we sold a hunt at the DSC Foundation Gala that uh, Mr. Russell Stacy set up for us through the Mescalero Apache Reservation where a hunter is going to get to go out there and, and take a, a trophy bull. Now, getting onto the Mescalero Apache is something that you almost have to be born into these days. Permits are very limited and... Uh, unless somebody gives one up there's not really a, a big chance of getting on the reservation to hunt for a trophy bull now they take a fair number of what they consider management bulls and that could be bulls with a messed up antler on one side or it could be a bull that's a older mature five by five and and or maybe even a little bitty six by that just has got a lot of age i'm hoping that i'm going to be able to go and that hunt of course i'm hosting it for dsc foundation and we're filming that hunt too for trigicon's world of sports at field which airs on sportsman channel so we're going to be out there with the uh, winner who won the the auction bid back in july as i said at the dsc foundation gala Hopefully, there'll be a permit there where I can get on to a management bull. It's been a few years now since I've hunted elk, and I dearly love to eat elk, and kind of out of room for, unless it would be just an absolute monster bull, so I'm hoping I can get into one of those bulls there that, uh, if I do get a permit, that will... Oh, maybe a great big 5x5. Five five. Uh, to me, those big 5x5 five five bulls are really kind of special in so many different ways. Kind of like a really big 8-point whitetail buck or 3x3 three three mule deer. You know, that most people look at, yeah, from a huge perspective, I guess, that look at it and go, yeah, he's not quite what I'm looking for. But, you know, to me, that 5x5 five five elk, if I get an opportunity to take one, is going to be absolutely a, a, a trophy of a lifetime as far as I'm concerned. It, to me, the trophy has nothing to do with the size of the animal or the size of the antlers. The trophy comes to me from the aspect of who you're hunting with, where you're hunting, all those memories that you create. That's the true trophy. And sometimes when I hear about, oh, trophy hunting is bad, I, I kind of shake my head because those folks have no concept of what a true trophy is. To them, it's, it's something totally different. 
And unfortunately, the, some folks don't want to listen to reason to find out what a true trophy is. But I've got some antlers that I've retained over the years that, to me, bring back such true special memories and of the people I hunted with, the circumstances of the hunt. But more the people and the circumstances, I think, than all the other aspects. Not anything to do with the size of it. So that's the hunt I'm planning on for this year. And we'll, while we're out there, we'll try to do some podcasts with uh, some of the, uh, the managers there on the Mescalera Apache and and uh, with Russell Stacy, who's also going to be hunting. And then the gentleman that bought the hunt as well, too. We'll try to do something with those guys to, uh, to, to kind of bring you on to the hunt, as it were. I'm going to be hunting on that particular hunt with a Remington Model 700 300 Remington Ultramag. Of course, Hornady ammo and Trigicon scope that I've got on it. I've been shooting it a little bit. And uh, with that ELDX load that uh, and the Precision Hunter that Hornady produces, I think it's a 220 grain bullet. I tell you something, at 100 yards, I'm putting them in the exact same hole with that particular gun. And that old 700, it, and I say oh because it goes back to about 1998. I actually went to the uh, factory. That's back when I was with uh, Shooting Times Magazine as, as a hunting editor, and I was invited to Remington on their annual seminar. They used to have a writer seminar that unfortunately they don't do anymore now or hopefully they may again do them in the future but i got to go to the Ilion new uh new york plant it almost said new mexico because i got new mexico in my brain but the Ilion new york plant and put that rifle together and took it on a hunt in british columbia with al russo who then was with remington and Shot an absolutely fabulous 6x6 elk way up high in the mountains. We'll tell those stories about that elk hunt one of these days. And then also, from a great distance of well over 500 yards, I was able to take a Rocky Mountain goat. And something I'd always wanted to do. Very interesting hunt. And again, we'll tell that story around another campfire. But with that particular combination, I feel very comfortable out to great ranges because it carries enough downrange energy to where I know if I do my part, I know the bullet's going to do its part. And it's going to, with the accuracy that that gun has, uh, you know, I'd, I'd feel very comfortable at taking a shot at an elk out to 400 yards, maybe even a little bit farther. But to me, the thrill of the hunt and the true hunt comes in and trying to get as close as you possibly can before pulling the trigger. So, you know, I've had been out to the FTW ranch where they teach the sportsman all-weather, all-terrain marksmanship. And... As a result of spending time out there, I had Tim Fallon put together a range card for me, and I know what the capabilities are with that particular combination of Remington, Trigicon, and, and a Hornady ammo out to well beyond that 500 yards, but hopefully we'll be able to get within 100 yards or less of that bull. That's going to be my goal. I'm, I'll kind of limit myself to not shooting over 200 yards, but uh, you know, I'd really like to call that old bull in, and we'll be there during the time when they're bugling and coming to cow calls. And if I'm so lucky to get a permit once I get there, that uh, I want to try to get as close as I can. And you know, if I could shoot that bull at 10, 15 steps, I'd be absolutely thrilled. Immediately after that, I've got a hunt coming up in October, and that's kind of really what I wanted to talk about a little bit this morning. It's a pronghorn antelope hunt that's on the Eastern Ranch uh, out of Clonch, New Mexico. Now, Clonch sits over close to um, Corona and the Carrizozo. I hunted that area years ago for mule deer, and I know there's some really big, nice, 
pronghorn antelope and some of that prairie country right on the edge of the, of the foothills before you kind of head toward Albuquerque and start getting into some of the mountainous areas. But uh, and again, it's a hunt that that we sold at uh, the DSC Foundation a Gala, and uh, part of the deal was is that I get to hunt on that particular hunt for certain, and uh, I was able to procure a permit from um, uh, Mr. John Easton, who family owns that chunk of country, and so I'm headed out that way in October, and over the years, I have to tell you, I've hunted pronghorn antelope pretty fair amount of I've shot them in Wyoming and Colorado and New Mexico and, and Texas in particular and over the years he's spent a fair amount of time hunting pronghorn antelope out in the northeastern part of New Mexico on the T.O. ranch years ago and out there I shot him with everything from handguns to muzzleloaders to to rifles and as a result of that I've hunted them quite a bit and nowadays is I love to eat antelope but I'm also going to in this instance going to be trying to look for one that's got some pretty nice horns now a few years ago like two years ago I was able to hunt with Greg Simons and I think we've probably talked about that hunt here on the podcast in the past but uh the last two years that i was out there with greg the year before last i shot an antelope that was 17 and a half inches on both sides and by far my biggest antelope up to that point i'd taken one that was 16 and 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 a few of them that were in that 15 inch class then last year went back out there and and uh, shot one with greg that was about 15 and a half and almost 16 on the other side beautiful antelope eight like I mean, really, really good. And, and uh, first year, I used a 257 Roberts out there with Greg and shot that antelope at about, actually, shot him at a measure 257 yards, which was kind of appropriate for that caliber. It was using a Ruger number one with a Trigicon uh, scope on it, and then, of course, Horned Yamo. And, and then uh, the following year, the last year, and when I shot the 15 and a half, 16 inch antelope, uh, we were doing that for the Trigicons World of Sports Field TV show, and I was able to use uh, uh, oh, my old friend Dave Fulson's 7mm Remington Mag, Remington 700, top of the Trigicon scope, and of course, Hornady Ammo as well, too. And on that one, uh, interesting hunt in so many different ways. I ended up taking that antelope at about... Oh, about 75 yards after putting a stock on him and getting close to uh, to him like I really wanted to. The interesting thing about that hunt was, and as I'm leading toward this hunt that we're going to do on the Eastern Ranch here in a few days, is that uh, before getting out, I sprayed myself down with the TRHP Outdoors scent guardian now this is a product that the, the scent that the trhp outdoors guys developed and and i've used it several different times for a lot of different purposes but uh it is a I, i'm not gonna say scent control because it goes so far beyond that it's not just scent control it destroys almost any kind of sense anything that's kind of oil based or human scent based but it amazingly seemingly too has some kind of an emf effect well, I'd sprayed my clothes, my, my green shirt, my brown pants, brown hat, gloves that I was wearing at the time, my gun, boots, everything down with, with Scent Guardian. We spotted a big old antelope out there. I'm saying he's probably 15, 15 and a half inches, and he was out there 
at about oh, close to 600 yards in a bald opening. And I mean bald in the fact that there was nothing there taller than about six inches between me and that antelope when I started. Dave Fulson, who is with Safari Classics, who does Trigicon World at Sports Field, followed me for a while, and we started walking toward this antelope. We got within about, oh, maybe 400 yards of him, and, and uh, Dave said, you know, he said, I think I'm going to stay right here. He said, why don't you see how close you can get? The interesting thing about this antelope is he was a big, older, mature buck, and by himself and very attentive to everything that was going on. And as I started walking to him, initially I thought he was looking at me, but then I realized he, he, really, he was looking past me because I went to the right a little bit and to the left, and he had spotted Dave kind of sitting there with a tripod and kind of looking, staring at him. And when Dave didn't move, I guess he felt like there wasn't any danger, so that because uh, he, for whatever reason, just did not seem to see me. So I just started walking, continued walking, actually, just at a slow pace, walking right directly toward this antelope. And... Every once in a while, he would spot something to my left or my right, and I mean, he would really concentrate on it because remember, they've got unbelievable eyesight that picks up any kind of movement, any kind of object they're not used to being there. I kept walking, cut the distance to about 200, and then kept walking and slowly and kept hidden his direct way and he'd look over to the left and he'd look over to the right and he'd just kind of look past me and kind of look you know left to right of me and I did not exist I kept walking and kept walking and kept walking and finally when I stopped I was 13 steps from that pronghorn and he still paid me no attention at all now he'd pay attention to something off in the distance but he it was like I never existed so I finally just stood there and evaluated him and, and uh, thought, well, and he just started feeding. And, and I turned around and walked back to Dave, and Dave was just shaking his head. He said, I've never seen anything like this before. And I said, well, you know, I haven't either. And so finally got thinking about the only thing that was different that I had from past hunts is I'd used the TRHP Outdoor Scent Guardian. And apparently it also not only did it have a total removal of, of scent from me because the wind actually was blowing from me to that pronghorn. It also had some kind of an EMF effect. Now, we've not been able to, to test this on, on um, technolo technology machines, if you will, but with the, the one that I shot, I, I cut the distance from about, oh my God, 300 yards to about 75 yards before I finally set up and, and shot. And again, the that pronghorn, it, it was like I did not exist. He was looking past me, and he was looking at different things, but concentrating on different things out in the distance, but never paid any attention to me and, and uh, let me get within really easily rifle, easy rifle range. I've had the same thing happen on some other animals, too. But one thing I can tell you for certain is that whenever I head to New Mexico here in a few days, that you know, I'm going to have some of that uh, scent guardian, have my clothes, my, my gun, my hat, my gloves, my boots, everything sprayed down. And of course, I'll take some with me and, and I spray it when I'm out there. And this time, I'm going to ask the cameraman to spray down as well, too. And we'll see how close we can get to some of those antelope out there. I know that Mr. Eason has said that he's got two or three really big bucks, but generally they don't let you get within about six, eight hundred yards of them. 
before they take off running. So this is going to be a, a, a true test there as well, too. Now, I mentioned in the past that I've shot quite a few antelope, and, and uh, I've shot a lot of those antelope in Texas and, of course, New Mexico, and, and took a really nice one several years ago in, in southern Colorado, and then I've shot some more massive horn antelope up in, in uh, uh, Wyoming years ago. And, and uh, what I'm looking for this time is I've kind of gotten on the kick once again. I'd, I'd really like to take a really nice antelope, so I'm going to be looking for something that is least... 15 or, or, or 16 inches, and I know New Mexico, particularly that area around Carrizozo and Corona, produces some outstanding antelope in terms of horn length, mass, and prongs. And over the years, I've learned a few things about antelope and looking at them, and the beauty of it is as a biologist and guide occasionally, I could look at an antelope, and then we were able to take that antelope, either myself or or one of our clients or a friend, and I'd, I'd kind of guess how long that horn, the horns were on that antelope, and then I'd have a chance to measure them. So I'm looking for one, quite frankly, this year that will be 15 inches longer, longer now. Uh, depending on if I try to shoot a 15-incher, it will depend a little bit on what kind of mass it has. And basically, how long the, uh, the 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 cutter or prong is, and you hear that thing called a, a, a lot of different things. Of course, those of you that know a little bit about antelope know that the pronghorn antelope is truly unique in in terms of, of being an antelope species. In that, uh, it's the only antelope out there that annually sheds the outer core horn and has a uh, core underneath, and, and so it grows a brand new set of horns every year and of course as they get older and have on good nutrition like anything they have a tendency to produce horns that are are a little bit longer and more massive and yes they are true horns they're not antlers they're uh, kind of a specialized hair uh, skin kind of like a fingernail kind of thing uh, the glutenated uh, epithelial cells, I think, is what it's called. If you get right down to it, but that outer, that outer horn gets bigger generally every year, and the prong gets a little bit longer. And you know, when you start looking for an antelope, it's hard to find one that's got really good long prongs and got good mass and has good horn length. A lot of times, they'll have one of the three or two of the three, and and lacking the other department. But as I said, over the years, I've had the opportunity to uh, to, to look at a lot of different antelope, and particularly where hunters were, or, my, or I had taken the antelope so that I had a good idea. Go, yeah, I think he's 14 and a half inches. I think he's 15 inches. I think he's 16 inches. I think he's 12 inches. You know, those kind of things. And then get up there and you can actually measure them. And again, as I mentioned, the, the, the trophy has nothing to do with, with the size of the animal, but at this point, I've taken a lot of different antelope, and, and I'm really kind of looking for one that I can do two things with, and, and three things. One is to uh, to put some excellent, fantastic meat in the freezer, to, uh, to take an animal that's got some size on him, that is a mature animal, and then that one that creates that really special memory after I have my animal mounted by it, um, 
double nickel tax termy there close to the Brownsville's and, and between the Brownsville's and San Marcos, Texas. And to, to allow me that every time I look at that animal up on the wall, like I have all these special memories that were recur or come back very quickly because you know remembering who you were with and circumstances and that to me is where the trophy part comes in as well too if you're going to have one mounted or keep the horns off of that you can look at those and it helps you remember all those special little details about a particular hunt one thing I've learned, as I mentioned earlier, is that I've taken measurements off a lot of pronghorn that were taken by hunters and, and going into a taxidermy shop, too, where somebody just brought a head in. And, and uh, so I wanted to measure the length of the ears and a few things like that that I can use as, as, a, as a judge. And one of the things that in looking at antelope in New Mexico and Colorado and Wyoming and, and Texas, one of the things I've noticed is a lot of them in terms of length that for a comparison, the eye to nose measurement. And basically what that means from the frontal part of the eye to the tip of the nose. I've, I've measured a lot of them. Very seldom have I measured one under eight inches. There's a few that I've measured that were like eight and a half inches, maybe a little bit longer. But the vast majority of antelope that I've measured have been from the outside front of the tip of the eye to the tip of the nose about eight inches, uh, maybe a little bit more, but very seldom, very seldom less. The other thing I've done is, is I've measured a lot of antelope ears as well, too. And from the very base of that ear to where it attaches to the, the head, to the tip, in most of those, it comes down to about seven inches. So, uh, you know, you look at an antelope and you can see that seven inch ear where well, you can use that as a comparison to the length. Now, prong length is, is something that's measured in terms of the score as well, too. And, and there, what you do is you measure from the very back end, the, the center line of the back of the horn, around the, the horn on the outside to the tip of the, um, of the, uh, the prong. And that's really kind of a hard thing to sometimes guess, but, uh, you know, most of the ears that I've measured are about two inches wide. Now, that means the ear sticking up, the greatest width, if you're looking at them, is about two inches. So antelope don't very often throw their ears forward. They're, They're usually kind of to the back. They really kind of depend upon their eyesight more than they do anything else in terms of of what they consider to be danger, although they do have a sense of smell. And, of course, they do hear, of course. But uh, So usually that, that, that ear is kind of going back and forth and back and forth, and usually it's, it's upright. And so you can use that eye-to-nose measurement, as I said, which in most antelope is 8 inches, or the ears, which is 7 inches. And then you can use the uh, width of that ear in terms of, of width to compare to the prong or compare to the base or you know different parts of that that horn and that's two inches so you know the antelope that i'm looking for for the most part unless he's got unbelievably huge long 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 prongs is probably going to be that animal that the where the prong comes off above the tip of the ear now that if it does that and then i'll kind of compare that ear tip to uh, our length of the ear to the the length of the horn or try to make it in terms of multiples to give me an idea as to how long those those horns really are 
so very often the horn that kind of goes up and doesn't hook back down as they kind of come back in, kind of curve back in or forward or whatever they might do or backwards. The one that goes kind of straight up and just has a little bit of a curl coming in, they have a lot of times they have a tendency to look longer than than what they are. I've looked at several that, you know, you initially thought, oh my gosh, they're 15, 15 and a half. And and, uh, then you look at them a little bit closer and you notice that there's no, curl in on the tip and go well and maybe somebody shot them and you find out it's a 14 inch antelope which is a really good antelope don't get me wrong but you know if that if that horn had curved back in well it could have been 15 or 16 inches long and i mentioned that tip too because a lot of times on older mature pronghorn bucks that that tip kind of becomes translucent so you've got to really look because it may just blend in the background and you go oh well he's not as big as i think he is but you know good optics are so important and so that's where i carry binoculars and then the spot and scope as well too so i can really study that animal from a distance to make sure whether or not we want to try to put a stock on him kind of thing but again to to get an idea in terms of, of length of horn in terms of uh, width of horn and in terms of uh, the, uh, the the length of the prong you know i'll use that two inch wider ear width measurement and that eight inch eye to nose measurement and that seven inch ear length and again i'm going to for the most part look for one that's got a where the prong does not come off until it goes up above where the ear tip is in the position when he's he's looking at you or whether he is a uh, uh you know you're getting a profile on him so those kind of things you know to me as i mentioned earlier anything over 13 inches some places is a really good antelope even a 12 inch antelope in some places is is really good i, I shot some of those in certain areas where nutrition was kind of lacking on a year-round basis and they were the biggest bucks that were there that 12 to 12 and a half inches but on a good nutritional diet those those bucks have a tendency to put on a little bit more horn length now in terms of if you're into scoring it takes 82 Boone and crockett points to make the all-time record book and i think it's like 80 to make the the two-year record book and basically what that is the only time spread comes into effect if the spread is wider than the length of the longest horn then there's you you have to have to have a deduction but uh for the most part you're you're measuring from the the very bottom of the horns right above where they come off at the eyes around the outside of that horn all the way to the tip and uh, then divide that to where you end up with take measurements at the base and three other quarters and then plus the length of the uh, the, the length of the prong again from the center and the median media if you will medium of the the back side all the way around to the tip of the of the prong sort of thing and they do uh, add those together and they'll kind of give you a gross score and then just like with Boone and Crockett and Pope and Young and a lot of those other scoring systems there's a deduct for say the main horn or the main beam if you want to call it that is is 16 inches on one side and 15 inches on the other side where there's a deduction of one inch from the total of uh when you add up the length and the uh, circumferences and the uh, the the prong length on on the two so on both antlers so but you know to me anytime you can shoot a, a pronghorn that scores from about 75 on up that's that's a pretty darn good pronghorn antelope one that you can pr- be proud of 
I've got a friend named Ernie Davis who for years specialized in, in pronghorn. Ernie hunted all over the dead gum west for pronghorn antelope, and I have no idea how many total Ben and Crockett bucks he's taken. I think he's got like 12 or 14 in the all-time record book, and I know of numerous others he's taken since then that he just, whatever he decided not to put in the book, maybe he just felt like his name appeared there enough, and he uh, he now hunts pronghorn antelope still these days, you know, for the pure joy of hunting. And with that, there's a lot to be said about that, because with pronghorn antelope, it's a game of, of glassing and looking over a lot of different animals. And then when you finally find that one that you're after of executing that stock to get closer to where you can get a, a good, reasonable shot at one, the antelope, as we know, live out for the most part in, in extremely open country. They depend very heavily, as I mentioned, upon their eyes to uh, to avoid danger. And they're the fastest land animal that we have in, in North America. And they're pretty close up there to what that cheetah can do over in Africa, to be quite frank with you. Years ago, when I was working as a wildlife biologist, quite often we were working in the western part of the state and you'd see a pronghorn antelope or two and they'd be next thing you know they're running parallel to you and they seem to like to do that and you just kind of speed up a little bit and they speed up on these old country roads and you speed up a little bit more finally you get up there at about 50 miles an hour and oh lo and behold here comes this pronghorn and he's he, he crosses in front of you so it's they're not too sure how fast some of those are actually going or what they're capable of doing but i can tell you I've had numerous pronghorn antelope cross in front of me going 40 plus miles an hour and and uh, they're amazing they're truly an amazing animal in so many different ways they, they when they run if you've ever seen photographs of one running their mouths are open and that's to increase the the uh, amount of oxygen that they can take in while they're running and uh, that allows them to, to to keep going. Now, the interesting thing is, too, is running with their mouth open, there's a little filter type thing that comes down that strains out uh, different things of dust and pieces of grass and those kind of things, old dried grass, that might cause a, a problem in terms of like foreign body pneumonia. So they're, they're well adapted, and they're truly one of the great, great conservation stories when it comes to any kind of game animal or any kind of animal in, in not only in North America and the world, one time their populations were down to near extinction. And uh, oh, habitat destruction was a big part of it. You know, some areas they were hunted for the were market hunted. And, uh, you know, there'd be a lot of people back east that did, didn't believe in hunting, but by God, they wanted fresh pronghorn antelope shipped their way. And so they were a great contributor of, of the decrease. And, but over the years, pronghorn antelope have come back so strong. I mean, their populations are extremely healthy and, and really show how sustainable hunting conservation works. I mean, it was hunters that paid for the conservation of the antelope to uh, to bring it back. To, to They paid for the trapping and the relocation. They uh, paid for habitat work. They paid for all the other things that have created a, a goodly number of pronghorn antelope. But in the process of doing that, it wasn't just pronghorn that benefited. It was, it was the range itself, the habitat itself. 
so many different prey species from from birds to small mammals. They're the ones who benefited probably a whole lot more than what pronghorn did. And again, all this, is, as you well know, is, was paid for by hunting. Now, on this particular hunt, uh, I've got a Remington 700 that I'm taking. Again, it's going to be filmed by Trijicon's World of Sports Field, and and they're sponsored by Remington. And so uh, that being the case, that's, that's particularly the gun I'm going to use. And in this instance, it's, it's a 280 Remington that I was able to pick up not too long ago. And, and uh, I've been really been playing with it. I think it's shooting 140 grain ELDX, I think is the load that I've got worked up for it. Uh, it's got a Trijicon uh, AccuPoint scope on it, of course, which I dearly love, which is external. Uh, it's got adjustments, so in case I do need to make a long shot. But again, to me, uh, I'm hoping that I can crawl belly crawl, whatever it takes to get within 200 yards or less of, of a pronghorn that I'm after. And, and uh, that, to me, will be the fun part of it kind of thing. Uh, the country where we're hunting will be wide open, so I will have worked up a load that is capable with, well, actually, you know what, I'm probably going to end up just using the uh, uh, Hornady Precision Hunter because I've worked up some loads for it on a with reloading, but I'm, I'm finding that that commercial load shoots as good as by hand loads do. So there's no reason not to do it that way. But uh, I've got that rifle with that particular combination, rather, shooting dead on at, at 100 yards, and I will end up, to, if everything works out, like I say, crawling within that distance and hopefully uh, putting the shot where I need to and putting a big old antelope on the ground and create a whole lot of memories and bring back a bunch of good pronghorn antelope meat. As we get on that hunt, what we'll try to do is to, uh, as I said, uh, just like we're trying to do with the elk hunt, we'll do a podcast or two based upon uh, the hunt while we're out hunting and with some of the people that we're with. And hopefully you'll join us right here again next week. And who knows where this thing is going to take us next week. We've got another podcast or two before we actually get into the field to start seriously hunting. But uh, got a couple of special guests coming up, and, and I hope you'll join me here, right back here at the campfire at DSC's Campfire with Larry Weiss soon next week. Thank you for joining us. And, you know, if you got something that you're interested in hearing about, please let us know about it. Know it and uh, know about it, and we'll do our best to, to bring it to you. Thank you all for joining us today. DSC Campfires with Larry Wysoon has also been brought to you by the Texas Wildlife Association, working for tomorrow's wildlife today, TRHP Outdoors, Kenetrek Boots for the trails less traveled, Boyt, the finest in hunting gear, Pyramid Air for all things air gun, and Ripcord, Rescue Travel Protection.